grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 16. Uh, Y'all, we are nearing the end. Next week, we will finish our journey through the book of Romans that has taken us more or less uh, a year and a half. We've obviously broken it up with several other subjects and sub-series along the way, but it's been an enjoyable journey for me. Uh, I hope it has been for you as well. And today we get a chance to to really kind of anticipate the end. We're going to take on a good chunk of chapter 16 uh, this morning and and take a look at it, and then we'll conclude our series next week as we finish off this incredible letter. Now, just as a quick recap as we get started this morning, you see a definite shift in focus in chapter 12. Uh, Obviously, the first 11 chapters feel like this this intense exploration into the gospel uh, that Paul has been working through and elaborating on. And then you get to chapter 12, and he says, now in view of God's mercy, now that I've explained God's mercy, here's how you need to respond. And chapters 12 through 15 really do kind of capture what our response to the mercy of God should be. And it's worked very well for the theme that we've had for this year, which is to live courageously. You look at all the different commands and instructions that Paul offers is here's how you apply this mercy of God to your life. Here's what it looks like to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. These are all great examples of what a courageous life looks like, which is what we're trying to aspire to as a church. And then you get to chapter 15, uh, the second half of chapter 15, as we looked at it last week, and, and Paul begins to prepare us for these concluding remarks. And he reminds us why he was writing talks about his desire to go to Spain and that here before too long on his way to Spain, he intends to visit this church in Rome. And and before he does that, he's got this collection that he's taken up from all these other churches. He's gonna take it back to Jerusalem. And in that disclosure, you see a lot about Paul's heart, his ambition to take the gospel and to preach Christ where he is not known. Uh, We used that as an opportunity last week to talk more about what does it mean for us to, to share in that ambition Uh, both in proclaiming the gospel and in in our own giving and our own sacrifice and surrender, uh, to have the right mindset towards giving, that it's an act of worship, the right posture, that is sacrificial, generous, and cheerful. Uh, And so you see there in chapter 15 him beginning to anticipate these concluding remarks, why he was writing future visits, and now you get to chapter 16, which is the list of greetings. And so we're going to read it uh, really through verse 24 and get kind of an overview of it, and then we'll talk through some, some major takeaways for us this morning. So follow along with me, chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Syncrie. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. All right, now before we go on, I just want you to know this next section is going to test me and my ability to pronunciate pretty much every name. So just your grace and your mercy as we go through it. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who works very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampelatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Trophena, Tryphosa, and those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, 
chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Potrobas, Hermas, and other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philolo- Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions, who put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sospater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cortus, send you their greetings. Now, footnote, verse 24, if you're reading the NIV, is not actually listed, but you can see it in the footnote that some manuscripts include here a verse for 24, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. All right, so there's your onslaught of names. If you wanna go back and work on your own pronunciation skills, then this is a great chapter to test those out. Uh, Chapter 16 is interesting because if you're like me, typically when, when I tend to approach a concluding remark of a letter that Paul's written in the New Testament, I, my brain instinctively starts to disengage, just a little bit. It's, it's kind of like this signal that, hey, we're nearing the end, we're wrapping things up, and because it's so personal and he's writing certain uh, greetings to specific people, I tend to think, okay, well, there's probably not a ton that is relevant or that I need to apply. Now, if you're a historian, these are, these are rich portions of the letter because you can go and cross-reference these names with uh, other references in the book of Acts or other letters that were written and get a lot of the story put together. You can see a lot of where these relationships began, where they unfolded, who sent who where, and, and a lot of historical pictures can be painted by looking at these concluding remarks. We're not gonna take that route today. We're gonna focus more on the descriptions that Paul has offered when he references these names and and what that shows us about the early church. Uh, Here's what's gonna make this somewhat interesting as we walk through it today is that typically when I prepare a message and and I look at a passage of scripture, uh, my, my tendency and approach to putting together a message is to find that one theme, like one idea that we can just reflect upon and, and look at it through a lot of different ways so that maybe it, it grabs you in a different way. Like if you're thinking about preparing a meal, I'm like, man, we're gonna have steak today. And I may talk about how you season it, <clears throat> how you cook it, you know, all the different ways, um, the different type of meat, but we're, we're gonna have steak. And that tends to be how I try to prepare a message. Here's the one theme and all the different ingredients around it. Uh, that's not really an easy approach with chapter 16. Uh, chapter 16 in these greetings, there are so many different descriptions and things that we're going to point out to. This is going to be more like going to the Golden Corral, right? And going to a buffet where you're like, hey, I'm going to get pizza. I'm going to get steak. Oh, and a burger. And let's try the sushi when I'm done. And it's just the, the theme, if I were to give you one, is really that this is the church, right? It's a description of the early church. And uh, it's not exhaustive. Like what we're gonna be able to extract from these exchanges today, it's not an exhaustive description, but we get so many powerful uh, depictions of who the early church was. And in so doing, we paint for ourselves an example of who we should aspire to be as the church as well. 
And so that's going to be our approach. <clears throat> and we're going to work through it uh, more or less in order. But what you'll discover is that as we work through it in order, there are certain things that are referenced repeatedly. And so we're going to be talking about certain qualities that are mentioned early, but then also reiterated later. And so it'll make sense as we walk through it. But the first quality, there's several that we're going to walk through this morning. The first one is this. What we can extract by just a general overview of all the different greetings and names and people that Paul has just referenced is that the church is meant to be a place uh, that is diversified. Right, you can see that really on the onset with just the introduction to Phoebe. Now, Phoebe is a female deacon, and it is most likely that she was the one that was going to be passing through and was entrusted with delivering this letter to the church in Rome. And so here you have a woman serving in a specific capacity of being a deacon and also being entrusted with a certain responsibility. And you can read through this entire list of names and see regular references to male and female. And females that had different roles of responsibility that were co-laboring, that were working alongside uh, the, the ministries of the gospel. Uh, you can look at names like Mary that were also included there in verse 8. Junia that's referenced in verse 7. Now some people would argue that Junia might be the name for a male, but others would argue that it's a name for a female. And, and there's a lot of different ways that you could evaluate that. I tend to read it as, as a name of a female. And when you see Junia referenced there as an as apostle, that's another important title of significance. And so chapter 16 becomes a really substantial chapter uh, that validates the role of women serving alongside men in the early church in a very important roles and very important capacities. But it's not just about male and female. Uh, you see a lot of names that are associated with Jew and Gentile. Uh, which shouldn't be a surprise given all the things that Paul has walked through through the course of this letter and the nature of the relationships between Jew and Gentile. But you see a lot of names that are more Jewish in nature, several that are more Gentile in nature. And so you see, again, this diversification that exists in the early church, male, female, Jew, and Gentile. And it doesn't stop there. Uh, what is hard for us to perceive but would have been common in those days is to recognize that a lot of these names would have been associated with the free class and others would have been associated with more of the slave class. There's a difference in status. Some that would have had more privileged seats in culture and some that would have had much more difficult positions in culture. And so you can see some of those things referenced. If you were to look there at the end again, Gaius, uh, who was able to host people in his home, uh, Priscilla and Aquila at the beginning, who also hosted people in their home, that would signify a certain level of wealth and status. Uh, I think it's also worth pointing out Erastus there towards the end in verse 23 is the city's director of public works. You even have public officials that are recognized within the church. It is, it is a diversification of male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor. The church is meant to be a diversified representation of the people of God. And, and I think that's a great reminder for us. I think that's a great challenge for us because the human tendency is to gather together in homogeneous realities, right? To find people that look like us, that think like us, that share a common culture and associate with them. And we do this in neighborhoods. We do this in institutions. We do this in organizations. We do this in churches. We gravitate to cultural comforts, uh, comforts and, and build kind of homogeneous expressions of our groups and our associations. And the church radically changes all of it. And what makes that so meaningful is because that demonstrates the power of the gospel. Because when we gravitate towards these, these kind of common 
ideologies or common identities built upon gender or race or all these different things, what that does is it creates potential for division. And where there's potential for division, there's potential for hostility. And so throughout the course of human history, we've seen one group war or divide or wrestle with another group because of these differences. And then comes Jesus. And then there's this gospel that according to Ephesians 2 says, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken. And what Jesus does is says, I trump over all of those things. I'm more important than your skin color, I'm more important than your gender, I'm more important than your age, your socioeconomic status, I'm more important all of it, and now all of you can be found as one through the name of Jesus Christ. And he brings us together. And so a church that expresses that level of diversification emphasizes one of the primary strengths of the gospel. So it's a great challenge for us, a great reminder for us that that's who we should aspire to be as a people that, that are able to bridge across those dividing walls of hostility. Let's keep working, keep working through it. You see that there with the reference to Phoebe. But then if you continue on there in verse 2, she's, uh, Paul says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So you have the word help and then benefactor, which the translation there for benefactor is protectress a female protector. And so what's happening here is that Paul is saying, when you receive her, help her for any help that she would need because that's what she's done for others. She has protected others, which leads us to our second characteristic. The church should be a place that offers help and protection to one another. I mean, that, that is who we should be. Uh, we should be a place and a people that can offer that sort of assistance, that sort of protection to each other. And so what I would love for you to do this morning is to ask yourself where you are in life. Because more often than not, we tend to find ourselves in one of two seasons. Some of you are here today, and if you're honest and transparent and vulnerable, you would say, I need help. And the reality is, is that's probably most of us, Right? Like, to have that moment to say, yeah, I don't have it all together. I've got all these things that I'm wrestling with. I need help with my marriage. I need help with my parenting. I need help with my temptations, my addiction, my anger, my depression, my loneliness, whatever it is. And you're in a place where you would say, I need help. But if that's you, let me tell you, you've come to the right place. Because that's what the church is here to do, is to help one another. And so if you're not in that season then the, the following question is, well, then who are you helping? Because that's what we've been entrusted to do, to offer and extend help to those that need it, to meet people in their time of need. The church is a place that offers help, right? This is who we want to be as a church. This is why we put certain ministries together and discipleship groups together and renewal and all these different things that we do, food assistance programs, is so that we can be known as a church that is quick to help and protect those that need it. And so if that's you this morning, let us know, how can we help you? If that's not the season of life that you're in, then tell us, how can you help others? And let's create that culture here within our church as well. Let's keep going. Church that promotes diversification, church that is quick to help. Verse three, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Now you will see the word co-worker uh, appear again there in verse nine with Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ. And this gives us another uh, way to describe the church. The word co-worker here is synergos in the Greek. And I actually tell it to you in the Greek for a reason. 
this morning, um, and it's not just to try to give you some sort of sense that I may have gone to seminary and can use that education from time to time, but because it sounds like something. What does it sound like? Synergos. Synergy. Right? That's our third characteristic. The third characteristic of a church is that it needs to have a place of synergy. What that means is that we work alongside one another. We work with one another. Right? The church is not a place that we want to work against one another or even independent of one another. We want to work in synergy. We want to work with one another. We want to be co-laborers of the gospel. And so again, I think this is something we need to be challenged by and aspire to. And here are the obstacles that I think often get in the way of a church finding that synergy and that sentiment of co-laboring alongside one another. Uh, Some of the times the reasons we struggle with this is because we just lack uh, a certain motivation. We, We have to combat apathy. We have to combat laziness. We have to combat indifference. What I mean by that is that a lot of us, we want to receive the gospel Right? We, we want to receive these things. We don't really want to work for the gospel. Because we are a part of a culture that is really high on entertainment and consumption. And so that naturally influences our approach to church. And so we come to church and we say, entertain me, feed me. And we never think about how we might need to actually work for the gospel and not just receive it. And so if you want to co-labor with someone, the first thing you have to do is recognize, hey, labor's involved. Like, Where are you working? What are you willing to put the effort into? We need to overcome that sort of apathy, laziness, or indifference. The other obstacle I think that sometimes can get in our way towards synergy is conflict, right? Antagonism. It's like, well, I'll work with some people, but I ain't working with them over there, right? And so then we just kind of create these silos and we create these sort of differences and we we don't really understand what it means to work with people, And so in order for us to overcome that, again, we have to be willing to follow the examples that Paul has laid out for us in the previous chapters, putting certain differences aside and understanding that we are are united in a common purpose. What does he say in this reference? That we work, we are co-workers in Christ, right? That that there is a greater bond, there is a greater uh, reason for our relationship, there's a greater reason for our purpose and our existence together that overcomes any of our personal differences We'd put our personal differences aside for the sake of Christ, that his name would be exalted over our own conflict, right? And so we've got to find those ways to address that conflict and do it in a healthy manner, which we'll talk more about a little bit later. Uh, But that's another thing that we overcome. And then the last one that I would speak to just very quickly is a lot of times we struggle with co-laboring, excuse me, and, and having that sense of synergy is just a lack of clarity, Right? A lot of times we get motivated by the gospel and we're ready to work and we're like, okay, work for what? What are we doing? And, and sometimes as a church, uh, we struggle to put together a clarity of vision. Hey, here's where we're going. If synergy is about moving together, then we've got to clearly define this is what we're passionate about. This is how we're going to work for the gospel. And so just as a quick reminder, you heard it earlier in the announcements. What does that look like for us here? Discipleship, healing, and justice. Like, that's what we're working towards. You want to be a part of this body? You want to co-labor with alongside one another? Then put those efforts towards discipleship. Making disciples, right? Investing in those things. It's towards healing. It's ministries like Renewal that meet on Wednesday night and coming together and say, how can I help you in your time of need? Or coming in and saying, I need help. It's justice. 
right? It's advocating for the oppressed, which happens in a lot of ways in this church, whether that's feeding the hungry or it's meeting other people's needs. But the one that we have put at the top as our primary motivation to focus and to co-labor in that direction is advocating for foster care and adoption. That's what our church wants to be known for. So co-labor with us. Let's work together in the areas of discipleship, healing, and justice, right? So a church is diversified. It is a place where you find help and protection. It is also a place where you co-labor and co-work. You find synergy. Let's keep going. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. A church that follows Christ is a church that is willing to take risks. All right, and you find this nature of risk-taking, obviously with Priscilla and Aquila, risking their life for Paul. You see other elements of risk-taking there in verse seven, again, referencing Andronicus and Junia, who were in prison with Paul. And you could probably also uh, reference in another point of, of risk-taking where it speaks to verse 10, uh, Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Fidelity means to withstand testing. And so we don't know exactly what that testing was, but it seems to suggest there was some risk involved, something that required perseverance and overcoming. But what you see in these descriptions here is the idea that a church should be one that is filled with risk takers. Uh, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you risked something for Jesus? And what was it? Like, here's the deal. And, and we've talked about this before. Uh, a lot of times what prevents us from risking for the gospel is fear, right? I mean, it, and it could be fear of anything. It could be fear of how others perceive us. It could be fear of losing comfort. It could be fear of, of perception, fear of surrendering our dreams. It could be fear of something really significant, even the, the sort of fear that probably Priscilla and Aquila and these others faced, which was fear of death, right? But as we've talked about before, Christians should be the most fearless people on the planet. Like, what do we have to fear? Death itself? Our Savior is victorious over death. So we can meet it with a fearlessness. Are we, are we out there seeking the approval of, of others and of men or the approval of God? Right? Following Jesus should be the greatest adventure of your life. Filled with risk. Filled with daring. Filled with courage. The church should be filled with people who are willing to risk. When's the last time you risk something for the gospel. Let that be the culture that we create. That's, that is the fruit of the courageous life, those who are willing to take risks. Let's keep going. They risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Another characteristic. Church should be a place that's filled with gratitude. As Paul is offering this description of Priscilla and Aquila and all that they've done, he gets to this point that says, I and these other churches... And we are grateful for all that they've done. The church should be a place where people are filled with gratitude. And not just any sort of gratitude. Obviously, there's a natural gratitude that we come here to express week after week towards our creator, towards this gospel, to, our, to all that Jesus has done for us. But what is specifically referenced here is gratitude towards one another. And so here's a challenge for you today, a word of encouragement. I would love for you to think of someone in this church, somebody that you know, uh, that's here today that you're grateful for. And before you leave here today, if you can beat them to the exits when we're all done and everybody's trying to get to lunch, I want you to go find them and I want you to pull them aside and I want you to tell them that you're grateful for them. And I want you to tell them why. 
right? Don't make it kind of like that farewell in the parking lot. We're like, hey, good to see you. Grateful for you, man. And like actually engage for a moment and just say, I'm grateful for you because you stood by me, because of your encouragement, because of your posture, because of whatever it is, fill in the blank. But do that today before you leave, right? That's your homework. That's easy, right? You can be done with it before lunch. But then I want you to take that mindset and that posture, and I want us to make it a habit, right? I want us to make it a habit to where maybe that's something we try to do every week, coming in here looking for people that we see and that we share these these responsibilities with and we co-labor with, and let's consistently express our gratitude towards one another. You know, one of the greatest remedies for criticism, division, complaint is gratitude, right? Looking to the things that we have rather than the things that we don't. And so demonstrate that gratitude towards one another. That's another key characteristic of the church. All right, let's keep going. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia, The church should be filled with new believers. Can I get an amen? Man, I hope some of you out there, you are new to this whole Jesus thing. Welcome, and may your tribe increase. Right, this is a reflection, this is the fruit of Paul's ambition. This is what happens when you are fiercely committed to taking and proclaiming Christ where he is not known, is that churches are gonna be filled with new believers. And may that be true of us. How do we achieve that? Like, how do we begin to see that sort of fruit? It only happens when when we're willing to share this good news, when we're willing to take this risk, whatever that may look like, wherever it may lead us, and to communicate this gospel where it is not known. So this past week, uh, we were in Houston, and, and one of the many takeaways for me personally was the opportunity to serve alongside, once again, Kevin Greeson. Uh, Kevin is a mentor uh, that I've had in the world of missions for many years. Got to meet him before I was actually here at UBC in my days of serving as a missions pastor at First Arlington and uh, have always looked up to that guy. His daughter actually was a member of our church for a season uh, before she and her husband relocated to Arkansas. And so the Greeson family is, is a great family, one that we are, are very grateful to know. And just any time you spend around Kevin Greeson, you're, you're going to be inspired at some point. Uh, he's one of the most fearless people, one of the most committed people I know to taking the gospel and preaching it where it isn't known. And so we were at dinner one night, and uh, the adults were sitting around a table, and he was talking about just some of his previous experiences. And he was talking about how, yeah, I went down this one street, and I was just sharing uh, with all these different people as I was walking by. And then he kind of continued to share his story. And as there was a break that ended up happening in the story, Jennifer interjected and she said, okay, now wait a second. Can you go back a little bit? Because you talked about going down the street and just sharing with folks. What does that look like? She's like, just help me understand. What, what do you mean when you say that? And he kind of nodded and smiled. He goes, well, it's not like I'm going out just like, hey, you know, and just sharing broadly to people. He said, you know, I get invited into these businesses, these homes, these places. I try to get around folks uh, with with tea, you know, again, going back to our sermon about the table and how that's one of the best places to have those conversations. He creates those environments, uh, but he even will go into different places of worship. Uh, It's not uncommon for Kevin to walk into a mosque or a Hindu temple or something and start engaging with the religious leaders. And so he was telling us a story uh, where he had walked into a mosque in one particular situation, and he was talking to an imam. And, and he said to the imam, who's the leader of the mosque there, he said, I've got this, this fire inside, and, and I have to let it out. 
And the imam is like, well, what do you mean? He goes, it's a story. It's a story I have to tell. And the imam said, well, by all means, we want to hear it. And he had a chance to share for several hours with Muslims in a mosque the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And hearing that story, to me, captures the sentiment that we should all carry as believers in the church. It should be a fire within our soul that we can't contain. We have to share it. Whether it's in our homes, whether it's with our families, our neighborhoods, whether it's one person or everyone we meet, the only way the church becomes filled with new believers is when that ambition to preach Christ where he is not known is fueled by the fire and the hearts of the saints. And so I pray that that exists within you. And if you're honest before God and say, I don't have that fire, pray for it. Seek it out. But the church should be filled with new converts. Let's keep going. We see some things already reiterated in these next verses. We have a reference to Mary, uh, obviously a female there. You've got the reference to Andronicus and Junia there in verse 7. We've talked about already how, already how they risked their lives and in their role and responsibility within the church. So our next characteristic is going to appear here in verse 8. Greet Amplinetus, my dear friend in the Lord. The church should also be highly relational, built upon relationship. The title and description that's offered here uh, is my dear friend, which is reiterated and, and emphasized there in verse 9 in reference to Stachys. And, and what you have here is a very powerful and meaningful word that I want to make sure that we consider this morning. Uh, it's actually the word, uh, let me see if I can pronounce it right. Uh, okay, I'm, I've switched my wrong letter. Agapetos, right? See, it's agape. And I was like, wait, I was trying to do, anyway. Agapetos, all right? And I'm not sure exactly where the uh, accent needs to be, but let me remind you of what that means. The, the more literal translation would be my beloved or a loved one, right? Which is why it's taken from the word agape. Now, if you've been in any sort of church for an extended amount of time, you've probably heard a message at some point or another that talks about the different terminology for love. Uh, there, there's eros, which is going to be the more erotic expression of love. There's phileo, which is the more brotherly expression of love, which is where we get the idea of Philadelphia. And then there's agape. And agape is this biblical description of love that is rooted in God's love for, the, for his children. It's this sacrificial, self-giving sort of love. And that's the sort of love that is referenced here when uh, Paul is talking about his dear friends, agapetos, right? And so my point is this. The church should not be filled with friends and acquaintances, but loved ones, right? That we should build our, our sense of relationship to the extent that when we gather here together, there is such a deep connection with one another that we recognize this sort of love that should exist within the body of Christ. That it's more than just friends, it's more than just acquaintances, but it really is this, this sense of this familial language, brother and sister. That's how the church is described. Now, how do you do that? Well, part of that is setting realistic expectations because you're not going to be able to do that with hundreds of people. You're just, it's just too difficult, right? So part of it is narrowing your focus and having those intimate settings in your life. This is part of why we have D groups. This is part of why we do mission trips is to create these smaller environments where we build that sort of deep bond with one another. But when you engage in those environments, what we have to do if we're ever going to experience that sort of friendship and relationship is we have to prioritize it. Man, we live in a busy world. Can I get an amen? Right? And it, it's not going to slow down. 
I mean, if you think you're going to get a break from the summer by starting school, you won't. If you think you're going to get a break from school by going to summer, you won't. If you think you're going to get a break at Advent, you won't. Right? It's busy. So the only way that we create that sort of connection is you prioritize it. Like at some point, we have to say, I've got to prioritize the relationships I have with my brothers and sisters. Uh, I've got to create space to, to make that sort of availability. If I want that to, to exist in my life, I've got to be willing to put the effort into it. Here's the reality. Love is a two-way street. Right? And a lot of us sit around waiting for it to find us. Right? I'm, I'm waiting for this community to come find me. I'm waiting for these friends to come find me. And, and the reality is that love is a two-way street, and it takes a shift in mindset. Right? There's, a, there's a proverb or a quote that I've referenced before. I, I forget to who attributed it to. But it's that idea that the person that goes out into the world looking for a friend may not find one, but the person that goes out into the world seeking to be a friend will find many. And and that's the sort of mindset we have to have. If you want to create that sort of connection within the church, go into your relationship seeking to love and watch how the response will be that you are loved. And that will create that sort of connection. So the church is highly relational. Okay, keeping on going. From here, what you'll see is that so much of what we find uh, through the rest of these descriptions has more or less already been reiterated. Uh, If you follow along there in verse 10, we've already talked about risk-taking and standing the test. Uh, We have a lot of just uh, referencing to fellow Jews and others that have worked and served in the Lord. Again, references to women, uh, groups of names there at the end. And so we're able to really kind of get through the majority of those greetings. So if you go to the end part of this chapter, even looking there at verse 21 and and 22 and 23, you see those same themes that we've already covered. Uh, Timothy, my coworker, we've already talked about that. Uh, Tertius, uh, it was common at this point in time to have somebody help you write this letter, and so he obviously was with Paul and helped put this letter down in writing. Uh, Gaius, who again, we talked about certain status and wealth and hospitality and helping others. So really, All the rest of the greetings, the descriptions that are offered in these other greetings we've covered in our conversation up to this point. So what is left for us and where we'll conclude our time over the last few moments here is verses 17 through 20, okay? And so here's the next description of the church. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. So the church should celebrate diversification. It should be a place where you offer help and protection. It should be a place where you co-labor and find synergy, right? It's going to be a place that's filled with risk-taking and gratitude, a place where you find new believers, where you find uh, the opportunity to, to create that sort of deep, meaningful relationship, and a church needs to be watchful. Uh, you, you have to be alert. This is really important, and, and I want to take some time here to try to connect this to the best of my ability with what we've talked about in chapters 14 and 15 um, already in the weak and strong faith. Uh, what, what we see here in this quick reference is that Paul is reminding the church, you really can't ever let your guard down. And that's a good reminder for you and me because the church for thousands of years has had to watch out because there are those who are gonna come and there are those who are going to sow division and conflict and discord and they're gonna do so um, in all these different ways that are disruptive. Now, What's interesting is that the language here is very different than the language that he used in chapter 14 and 15, right? Because what he tells us here is that your response when you encounter these things uh, with these sorts of people is you keep away from them. That's the command, keep away. Watch out and keep away. 
But in 14 and 15, if you go back to that, there were also potential for quarreling and differences over disputable matters. And what Paul says there is accept one another, right? Figure out how to build one another up who have strong and weak faith. Um, and, and figure out how to coexist when you have those differences, overcome this conflict. So what's different between what we've talked about in 14 and 15 and what we see here? Uh, one main characteristic that I want to try to highlight for us real quick. When you go in chapter 14, if you look back in verses 5 through 9, and this whole discussion on food sacrifice to idols, or not sacrifice to idols, just the, the food of clean and unclean, and the ritual days of the Sabbath and other feasts and important days that they celebrated, these Judaic customs and ritual purity. Uh, when you go back and look at that, in verses 5 through 9 in chapter 14, Paul uses this refrain, to the Lord. Over and over again, he's like, so if you eat meat, eat it to the Lord. If you abstain, abstain to the Lord. If you live, live to the Lord. If you die, die to the Lord. If we live or die, we do so to the Lord. Over and over again, the posture in that study and what you find in 14 and 15 is that those who are taking these issues, even if there's disputes, even if there's disagreements, but we're all taking it to the Lord, that's where we can once again find a way to struggle alongside and not let that quarrel and division uh, create any sort of problems within the church. But there are others. There are others who are going to work their way into the church, for either from outside the culture or within and it is not going to be a posture that is to the Lord. It's going to be one that is to the self. Take a look. For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. And so here's the difference. Right? There are going to be folks that are going to work their way into the church. There are going to be voices that are pressed upon the church from culture and surrounding areas of influence. And they are going to constantly try to lead us astray, cause friction, because they're seeking to serve their own appetites. And a lot of times this can be the same issue, right? It's just a different heart. If you were to read Galatians, right, which deals with a lot of the same concerns, right? There were people in the church in Galatia that were trying to force upon the church the idea of adhering to these Jewish rituals. Uh, again, what they eat and, and what days they observe, and even the idea of circumcision. And Paul's language for those folks in Galatians are as much harsher than anything we read in Romans. Right? In Galatians, he's like, they are perverting the gospel. Let them be eternally condemned. They have infiltrated our ranks. They are, they are due the penalty that will come their way. Like he has gone on and on with a much more harsher rebuke of those in Galatians. And so what we have to recognize is that when we look out in the world and we feel this tension of, of division, there are some people that are going to try to come in, distort the gospel, distort teaching, that are going to intentionally try to sow those seeds of discord so that they can satisfy their own appetites, their own indulgences, their own pleasures. They are taking it to themselves and not to the Lord. And you have to be watchful. You have to be on guard. What Paul says, keep away from them. Right? There's got to be a certain purity that is preserved within the church. And that takes a tremendous amount of wisdom to know the difference between the two. So the church has got to be watchful. There's a lot more that we could unpack on that if we had time. Send me an email if you want. We can go grab coffee. Um, here's here's a, the last two. Uh, one of the ways that we guard against that, uh, if you pick back up there in verse 19, everyone has heard about your obedience. So I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. What Paul acknowledges here is that the church in Rome is actually, though he's telling them to watch out and be on guard, they do a good job, 
right? I know that you're doing well. I've heard of your obedience. Keep at it. The church should be filled with obedient people, right? We should take obedience seriously. We should strive for that sort of fruit of the Spirit, right? That this isn't an obedience that is driven by works, but the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, if you were to bring in Galatians as an aid to read this section, you would see that the fruit of the flesh is sexual immorality, debauchery, uh, division, discord, hatred, all these different things. But the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We should be obedient to the Spirit, and the church should be filled with the fruit of the Spirit as a result of that obedience. So you're hearing these descriptions of the church. Again, uh, let me close this with one final one. Just as, as you think about this buffet line that we've walked through, we want to be a church that understands what it means to find diversification, help, and protection. We want to co-labor alongside one another and have synergy. We want to be risk takers. We want to have a church that's filled with new believers. We want to be built upon relationships. We want to be watchful and obedient. Here's how I'll close. We want to be expectant. I love it there in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. See, what Paul knows is that we live in a broken and evil world. And that can be really, really difficult. And it's not lost on me that many of us that walked in this room this morning have felt the adversity and the hardship of living in this broken world. And there are moments, there are days where it just feels like it's too much. And if we drift off from the gospel and we drift off from the hope of Christ, there are times that we will lose a sense of what is to come. We will lose our sense of expectation of what Christ has promised. And so Paul offers this powerful reminder, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The church should be expectant for the victory that we have in Jesus. Whether that is something you experience currently in your life, you should expect to a certain degree, the ability to overcome challenges and obstacles because that is what has been gifted to us through the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. But even if you don't find victory in this life, because there's no guarantee that you will, though it is possible through that power, even if you don't, we never lose the hopeful expectation knowing that one day that ultimate victory will be ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because we serve a God who is not distant, who is not uncaring, who is not just sitting idly by and watching us navigate this world. We serve a God who is rich in love, a God of peace, a God of comfort, one who is strong and holy and righteous and mighty to save. And he will save you, and he has. And so let us be a church that reflects all these characteristics and the hopeful expectation that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. And we acknowledge that um, so many times, God, we lose sight of who we are called to be as your, as your church. And I pray that these characteristics that have been revealed to us through these passages today, God, would be uh, evidenced in our own lives. God, that you would allow them to truly materialize and be on display through the life of this congregation that you would build us up accordingly. Because God, we want to not just be courageous people, we wanna be a courageous church. And we believe that these characteristics that we've been challenged by today lead us down that path. So help us to 
to demonstrate these things to one another and to the world around us, that we can exalt this gospel that is truly powerful, that we can truly let this light shine to the whole world and let you receive the glory that you so richly deserve. God, we thank you. We give you ourselves to the praise of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And all God's people said amen and amen.